Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 158 for the second half of February 2017. The topic I'm going to talk about today is not something I'm going to be talking about, but rather I'm bringing you an interview with Dr. Todd Lauer about image processing. Dr. Todd R. Lauer is an astronomer at the National Optical Astronomical Observatory, or NOAO, headquartered in Tucson, Arizona. Todd received a B.S. in astronomy from Caltech in 1979 and a Ph.D. from the University of California, Santa Cruz, in 1983. He served on the research staff at Princeton University Observatory from 1983 until 1990 before joining the NOAO scientific staff. Lauer is or was a member of the Hubble Space Telescope WIFPIC-1 team and has conducted extensive research with Hubble. In 1992, he received the NASA Exceptional Scientific Achievement Medal in recognition of his early work with the instrument. Lauer's work with the Hubble is largely concerned with the search for massive black holes, the structure of galaxies, and stellar populations. Recently, he joined the New Horizons science team and has helped support the analysis of the imagery obtained during its exploration of Pluto, Charon, and the other objects in the system. Lauer has a long-standing technical interest in astronomical image processing, which is why he's on this podcast, and explores algorithms to optimize the use of astronomical cameras. So with that lengthy bio out of the way, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stuart. How do you want me to refer to you? Uh, Dr. Lauer, Todd, you? I, I think Todd is good enough. <laughs> All right. All right, so um, let's go ahead and get started right away with uh, sort of a little bit more on what you do. So with the bio, you've done a lot of different kinds of astronomical imaging, but is your research focused exclusively on image-based data, like stuff that you know I could go out uh, on my vacation that I'm going to leave for in 12 hours and just take a picture with my normal camera? Or do you do other kinds of uh, light or other kinds of data-based science? Well, I I think the thing to emphasize is that, first and foremost, I'm a researcher, and you do what's ever necessary to answer the questions you have. Um, That said, my technical side uh, has focused on image processing, but I've worked with a lot of problems with a lot of people where you had to have many other skills. And so, you know, I've done spectroscopy. There's components where I've done a little radio astronomy, infrared astronomy. Um, you know, the, the hard work there may be done by other people on the team, but, you know, we're all in it for the question uh, to be answered. And so that's where I think of first is you say, I want to look at this, and then you say, well, what kind of tools do you need to actually do the work? Makes sense. I guess a natural second question is, can you name all of the different telescopes and cameras you've been involved with over the years? Or if you can't name all of them, or if it would take too long, uh, what about some of the highlights? I mean, we already mentioned Hubble and uh, WIFPIC-1, which was the wide field planetary camera one, that one where sort of the iconic one that had the the three large blocks on uh, three corners of a square and then a smaller block in the middle. Well, of course, actually, WIFPIC-1 had eight CCDs. Uh, the, the Batwing 
shape that you're talking about is with pick two. Oh, oh, so you're even before that. Oh yeah, we we were there right at launch, and the uh, the camera had two modes. It was a wide field mode, which uh, you know was going to be most of the cosmology, and then um, you had a rotating pyramid of all things that uh, split the light into four cameras, and it rotated and split the light into four different cameras, which were a zoom mode. It was called planetary uh, camera because you could take high-resolution images of planets, but you could take high-resolution images of anything. That was just a name, not not an advocation of a particular usage. Um, Thinking about, uh, you know, what cameras and telescopes I've used over my life, it's a little bit like, you know, what have you eaten for breakfast for the last month? And I, you know, it, it's uh, not something I'd sit down and say, you know, that'd be exhaustive. Um, I can tell you uh, something that might be amusing to you. The first telescope I used professionally, and I was an amateur growing up, so you know, I used little amateur telescopes. You know, say a six-inch reflector. Actually, I still have it. Um, but the first professional telescope I used, uh, I was actually part of an asteroid search program uh, at Palomar, and that was the 18-inch Schmidt. It was the only time in my life that I ever used astronomical plates, real film. And I'm glad, because <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that again. Um, but, you know, I've used uh, the telescopes of Palomar, the 200-inch. My PhD was at Lick Observatory, which had 120-inch Telescope. I actually did uh, my PhD thesis on a small telescope. There, a one meter telescope, and had a brand new CCD. CCDs were new in the eighties, and I was the first CCD PhD thesis at the University of California, and that was on a small telescope. But uh, I was actually interested in high resolution problems. How many and, pixels did that have? Oh, it was it was gigantic. It was uh, five hundred by five hundred pixels. Um, wow! And uh, that's a, the best, what a quarter megapixel, something like that. Yeah, and and uh, and the coolest part of actually, I guess it's what two point five mega. God, multiply in your head. For yeah, quarter megapixel. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, the best part was it had this grotesque response over its surface. It looked like you were observing through a filter that looked like the bands of Jupiter. Hmm. And back then, you know, we really didn't know how to prepare CCDs. We certainly didn't know how to reduce them. And I was a wee graduate student, and my problem was to make the whole thing work. And uh, so that was my first, you know, exposure to real image processing as a graduate student. And, you know, I got involved with the Hubble Space Telescope as a postdoc, and that's continued my whole career. And at NOAO, we have telescopes at Kitt Peak and at Tololo, um, which is in Chile. It's in the Chilean Andes. And I've used those telescopes. And, you know, with researchers and other teams, gosh, I couldn't begin to add it up. Um, you know, I got some nights on the Keck telescope with adaptive optics. So I've gotten around a little bit. That, that would be the best way to say that. So cool. Uh, so we already said that you had worked with the Hubble Space Telescope, and that's probably what most listeners are going to be most familiar with. And 
when you were sort of first introduced to the New Horizons team, and I, I swear these are going to link up, when you were first introduced to the New Horizons team, uh, you were sort of billed as the guy who solved Hubble's astigmatism problem. And so I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you did with Hubble very early on because there was this really big issue with this, what, billion-dollar telescope in space where everything that it was doing was blurry. Yeah, so the Hubble um, is an absolutely incredible machine. Uh, it's a fabulous research tool and, uh, you know, was – the ideas for it uh, started with Lyman Spitzer in the 40s, and you know, before I was born, certainly. And, you know, they did serious, you know, exploratory development of it in, you know, the 60s, and then in the 70s it became a real project. And this was going to be the big new thing. And it's, I, you know, over my career I have never seen any excitement for any mission as much as I saw with the Hubble Space Telescope. And, you know, it's going to solve the riddles of the universe and, and, you know, the age of the universe and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And we launched it. And, you know, I was on the camera team and WIFPIC-1 uh, was th at the heart of the telescope. So we had the imaging program and we had guaranteed time on a telescope. And I'm somebody, you know, at the start of my career, I say, oh, boy, you know, what a place to be. We're going to have an awful lot of fun with this. And they took some images, and they didn't understand what they were seeing. Um, we had the, the light from stars, which you want to make a very sharp uh, image, had sort of a sharp core, but had this fuzzy halo around them. And, uh, you know, it wasn't understood. Maybe, you know, the telescope was out of collimation. You have to adjust the mirrors, and you have to focus and tip them around a little bit to make sure everything's aligned. And, you know, a lot of people were sure that's what it was going to be. But our team uh, started looking at the images, and we started uh, requesting a test program outside of what the actual contractors were doing. We just wanted to take pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, they had this fancy <clears throat> interferometric device, you know, which is, oh, you know, we'll use this. We don't need pictures to focus. That's what you guys do at your little telescopes, and I, you know. Well, fine, but can we have some pictures anyway? You know, yeah, okay, just as long as you don't bug us, you know. And I'm not joking. They essentially said that. And um, so we got these pictures, and, uh, you know, we, we found, uh, looking at them, that uh, the telescope had a very severe uh, aberration, as it's caused. The mirror was simply misfabricated. And it later develops that this kind of uh, mistake um, is actually common uh, with the fabrication of large mirrors. Hmm. Uh, and people know about it, and they make that mistake, and they say, oops, and then they look at it in their lab, and, you know, they fix it up, and, you know, nobody's any of the wiser, except, you know, when you launch it into space, you can't fix it up. And right. so, uh, you know, that was a... The shock and uh, that that work was dominantly done by Sandy Faber, who was my PhD advisor and was on the WIFPIC team, and another of her students, John Holtzman. Um, they were the ones that really ran this uh, to the ground, as it were, and said, "Hey, we got a problem." 
So here you are, you know, you're at the start of your career. Everybody's attached to this telescope. A lot of people have had their careers attached to this thing. It's launched. It's going to be the greatest thing. And, you know, this is incredible, unbelievable screw up. And, you know, I could go into that length, but I'll skip it. Yeah. Let's go to what you were able to do. Yeah. So, so, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and it was realized that the fix uh, was to, you know, put in instruments that had corrective optics, and that ultimately was what was done. But that, you know, was going to be at least three years in the future. Uh, and in 1990, we didn't know how far in the future it was. So, you know, it's up there. What are you going to do? And I should say there were a lot of people that wanted to shut it down. Mm-hmm. Say, so, you know, don't throw bad money after good. So you can't see the future. And we didn't even know if NASA was really going to fix it, you know. So, as they say, you play the hand you're dealt. And my own background uh, was in image processing. And I had done uh, a, a phrase I'll use now and then, what's called deconvolution. It's a fancy phrase. But it simply means looking at how uh, telescopes blur and uh, correcting for that blur and it's so so deconvolution is it's almost a magic wand i I think these days and i think it bears a little bit more talking about because it's one of those buttons basically in photoshop i mean it's basically the sharpen button right where you say i want to sharpen this image and it performs a deconvolution on the image and um, I think people are generally familiar with what that kind of does. It sort of brings out some contrast and it makes things almost um, ring. It, it look it makes the, some of some of the borders and the contrast look sharper, but it sort of makes it look abnormally sharp if you uh, do it to an extreme amount. I mean, I remember uh, when I used to be on this photo forum called The Photo Forum, and people would post these moon images that they were so proud of, but it looked basically to me like, well, Swiss cheese, because they had sharpened the hell yeah, out yeah. of it, and it was just, it was so bad, I guess. And so if you could talk a, a little bit more about that, because I think deconvolution is used and abused so much, and I, a little you know backroom talk is, on the New Horizons team, I mean, when you when we were preparing for Encounter and you were talking about deconvolution, I think a couple of us were like, uh, what's going on here? He's waving a magic wand. <laughs> what's what's going to happen? And, and as you know, I, I actually had a magic wand with me there at, at uh, yes, my computer. Yes, you did. You, you had Dumbledore's <laughs> magic wand. But besides See, I that. Was, I knew it was going to be handy. Um well, I'll, I'll give you one of my rules uh, about algorithms, uh, which is that the power of an algorithm is directly proportional to its ability to cut your hand off. <laughs> um, you know, so that's a good one. I'll, I'll need to remember that. So, so you know, when I was you know uh, in junior high, I took woodshop, and uh, you know, at, at that point, going into that, you know, I knew how to use a saw, you know, and I could nail boards together, crap like that. But you go in there, and there's some scary equipment in there that can do really neat things. But if you don't know what you're doing, it'll cut your hand off. And that's true with a lot of algorithms. Deconvolution is a very powerful tool. But you have to know what you're doing with it. 
And one of the problems is that a lot of people don't know what they're doing with it. And that doesn't stop them from, um, from using it. And as a result, people get kind of like, Oh God, somebody's just going to make a mess out of our pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I saw some work on JPL. Somebody uh, worked on a galaxy that uh, had a jet coming out of it and the deconvolution turned it into great big halos with circles around them. And they published this in the paper, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, even the paper they explain it as artifact, but a scientist would look at that and say, "Yeah, okay, right, uh, fine, um, keep it away from me." <laughs> right. Um, but the flip side of that, though, it's a very powerful tool, and if you use it correctly, if you understand it, then you can um, then you can do something with it. I mean. This is a bit self-serving, but they say a flip side, rather than a power, they'll think of like a fighter jet. You know, there are people that can fly them, but if you stuck somebody in them and say, okay, well, here's your manual, have at it, uh, you know, <laughs> you hope the most they do is never turn the engine on in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so deconvolution, um, it comes from describing what a telescope does uh, to images. You take a, a look at a star, and stars are, are pinpricks. They're just complete pinpricks. And, you know, you can't even see a pinprick in the, in the picture. It has to be broadened out by the pixel. But you see stars and images and they're kind of blobs. Well, that blob is not what the star looks like. It's what the camera, how the camera represented the star. And so if you looked at a, at a picture, you could do a deconvolution by eye. You say, oh, look, I see all these blobs. I'm just going to replace them with a pinprick, you know, about the right brightness. And you could do that. In fact, there is software that does that. And that's simply saying, look, I, I know that, you know, those aren't blobs. They're, you know, they're real pinprick stars. So let's just replace them. And that's easy to see because if I just have a field of stars, uh, it's easy to understand that. But now I'm going to take a picture of a galaxy or, you know, somebody's face or, you know, maybe it's a reconnaissance satellite looking down in the ground for a secret missile base somewhere, you know, whatever. And the scene is very complex. And Mm -hmm. when you blur this, that overlaps with that, and it gets very goopy. And you look at that and you can say, well, you know, I, I kind of see some stuff here. It's fuzzy. I know the fuzz is the camera. It's not how it's really looking. Uh, you know, what can I do? And, you know, then it gets to be very elaborate. But, uh, if you have a mathematical description of what the camera does, there is a way using mathematics to remove it. The tricky part is that uh, this would, you know, it would work perfectly, but for one nasty thing, and that's the images themselves are never perfect. They have noise in them. Uh, you know, if you look at a grainy photograph, I mean, people don't photograph anymore with film, but, you know, the old photographs were often very grainy. And, you know, to a computer algorithm, that looks like fine details. So you say, well, I'm going to sharpen that image. Well, look what you did. You know, you, you sharpened it, but you blew up the grain too. Right, it looks like a Petri dish now. Yeah, you know, or, you know, maybe you don't have a good description of, of what the camera did. For example, a lot, they refer to the Photoshop sharpen function. Um, what 
uh, Photoshop often does is it has uh, what's called a Laplacian filter in it. That's a fancy name, which you know gets rid of uh, some of the the fuzz by blurring a picture and taking it off and uh, leaving it behind. But that's just a generic guess, and one of the results is is that you know you get weird artifacts because you didn't really describe it correctly. But people say, oh, well, I got the sharpen function. I'll just push this and look at that. I do see things sharper, and, well, I'll just ignore the nasty part. And, you know, there's a lot of things like that. So it, it requires care to set up. It requires care to use. And, you know, the final step, which is very important if you're going to use it for science, where, you know, you, you want to measure things. You just don't want to look at things necessarily. Uh, there you have to check it in with simulations or other things to make sure you really understand what you can trust and what you can't trust. And so, you know, th- there's it laying it out. Understand what the camera did, pick an algorithm that can do it correctly, and then validate it when you're done. All those things have to be done. And if you scrimp on any of them, you're going to make a mess. So I guess to sort of summarize that, and um, for listeners – I don't think we're actually going to get into the nitty-gritty of what deconvolution does, but I'll provide uh, at least one link in the show notes to what it does because it's really hard to explain with words. But I guess to summarize, it's it can be this very powerful tool, but in order to use it correctly and apply it to your images correctly, not only do you have to understand that tool with intimate detail, but you also should create a simulated data set where you know what the actual object is, you simulate what it would look like with your camera, and then you apply the deconvolution tool to that simulated camera image and see if you reconstruct the original object without adding additional artifacts. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's that's a pretty good description. You you reminded me of you know one of the first times I did this um, for my thesis in graduate school. I developed an algorithm that would do this, and and uh, it was really you know if I, my my whole idea of research was going to work, and so I built this huge machine, you know, and it had a big this big switch on it. And there was one day that, you know, I said, well, I guess it's time to throw the switch and see if it works, you know, and you can almost imagine, you know, like, my God, what's going to happen, you know. And I threw the switch, and it was on simulated data, mm-hmm. and it worked. And, <laughs> and I said, oh, great, now I can take the rest of the year off. And I went in <laughs> to my advisor and said, well, hey, you know, it works, you know, well, you know, good, I can take it easy for a while. And she said, so when are you going to get your PhD? And I said, oh, blah, blah, blah. I says, how about how about like in six months? And I said, "What?" <laughs> so 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 in a sense, the result was that you know I was quickly thrown out of graduate school. I said, "Okay, time for you to get on with it and get out of here." You know. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was going to say uh, from your bio, you only spent four years in graduate school, which is really fast for a PhD in astronomy. Yeah, it. Um, it, 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 it's funny when I think about that because, you know, it, it didn't feel purposeful at the time. It's like, oh, what am I going to do, you know? And and uh, I actually wrote two software systems, or actually three software systems for the observatory 
you know, to control instruments and other things. So he was doing a lot of functional work on top of that. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's the way these things come out. And, you know, the, the only thing I could say is that being a graduate student, um, at Santa Cruz at the time, it was pretty thin. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I wanted, to, I wanted to know where my next meal was coming from. And, you know, and I heard about the unbelievable riches and becoming a postdoc with a real salary. And so that, that kind of looked appealing to me. So getting back, actually, <laughs> that stopped you. <laughs> no, I, I realized that, um, that we actually never got to what you did with Hubble. So oh, yeah. we had okay. these blurry images and you knew of this technique called deconvolution, which again, I'll link to in the show notes for an actual explanation of what that does. But you were able to wave your magic wand and solve the problem, right? Yeah. And, uh, that, that was a very tricky thing. So I, you know, watching the, the development of diagnosing the problem, uh, I felt that something like this could be done. And I had some tools and with simulations, I satisfied myself <clears throat> that it was likely to work. Um, it was though very tricky at the time because, uh, most people on the team I was on, you know, let alone the external world of astronomers, were frankly hostile uh, to doing anything uh, for a couple of reasons. <clears throat> One was that they felt if, you know, there was some, quote, miraculous fix that they wouldn't repair the telescope. But they also had bad experiences with uh, image processing. And kind so of what I was, I was saying with what we thought when you said you were going to do this with New Horizons. Yeah, it was like, oh, my God, it was another one of these nutcases, you know. And, uh, you know, now my advisor was on the team and, and my postdoc sponsor was, was there and they knew that this could do it. But, you know, I kind of had to make the case for myself. But then on the flip side of that, in the outside world, um, there were a lot of people who were experts in this, this technology, but they had a very poor understanding of our camera and the actual details of what we were trying to do. And they said, oh, you know, this will fix everything. It'll be great, you know. And to that group, I had to say, no, you know, tamp it down. Uh, you know, you're going to go nutty and this, you're going to do something that's going to make a mess. And to the team I was on, I say, no, this is going to help. So I was, I was kind of in a bimodal part between two groups trying to find the balance. So you were playing uh, both sides of the field. Yes, absolutely. So we'll do this. It'll help. And the way to describe it is, <clears throat> you know, if this is kind of crude, but they said, look, if, if, you know, your legs were broken and that's how the telescope was launched, I could build crutches that would allow us to hobble along, but we weren't going to run. And that's kind of, um, you know, where I had to sell this is like, it's not a cure, but it will help. But, um, we got a test image, um, of a cluster of stars, uh, that was a, you know, it's a young forming star cluster in the southern hemisphere called R136. And this was passed around and I, you know, got a copy and I was able to demonstrate, you know, straight out that I could sharpen the image credibly and uh, make a nice result from this. And this was good news. I was the first one to demonstrate this successfully with real Hubble Space Telescope data. And uh, they had a release where they said, okay, you know, look, you know, we can do this. We're, you know, we'll be able to do some research. Although that in itself, it, uh, 
you know, um, shows the dangers. As it turns out, there are a lot of people that, that tried it and, uh, there was a group, and I won't name names, but they got enthousi- over enthusiastic and they uh, basically amplified noise. And, uh, this got out, and somebody who was not part of that group, but an astronomer who was interested in star clusters saw the noise and said, oh, you know, look, you know, we've made a discovery. These are all young stars forming in this cluster at a level we had no idea of. And he wrote NASA headquarters and said, mm-hmm. you know, stop the presses. And this went up to the science division and they wanted a big press announcement of a amplification of noise, you know, as real science. And my PI and a, a couple other PIs basically had to stand on this guy. And they came down to about 10 minutes before the press conference saying, we're not going to go out there and say this stuff. Jeez. And, you know, I was watching this thing and I said, great. Okay. So we've solved, you know, we've gotten somewhere solving the problem. And the first thing we're going to do is show a bogus result and completely, you know, destroy credibility of this method forever. Um, so imagine trying to navigate these waters. Well, I, I mean, people who listen to this podcast are somewhat familiar with that, although we usually only see it with pseudoscientists who take any image and they look basically at the noise or JPEG artifacts or anything that is just an anomaly of the image-taking process and claim that it is their pet idea. So usually aliens or yeah, sure. covering something yep. up or whatever. Yep. But you're saying in this case, it was just a simple case of an enth- enthusiastic real scientist who just didn't understand the complexities of what you were doing. And because of that, they look at what, maybe uh, an early release image without actual context and then say they're trying to do science from this and, and it gets wow, 10 minutes well, before I, a press release is amazing. I, I, I should say, uh, to be a little clear, and I, I want to stay away from naming people. That's, yeah, don't name people. Um, it was actually not my work. There was a bit of a competition and uh, there were a lot of people that said, oh, we're going to be the ones to solve this. And there was a meeting where um, a few results were presented, and the WIFPIC team's result, which was mine, uh, you know, was clearly the best. Of course. And, and so uh, other groups were given actually more time to try harder. And there was a group that basically, you know, you know turned the dial all the way to the right, you know, redlined their algorithms and they made the noise and that, you know, and so a, a, a person in their department saw this and wrote NASA. And so in an effort to sort of top what we had done, you know, okay. they went nutty. That's what got out. Um, Still, that's threatened with getting oy. out and we had to tamp it down. And this, this was, you know, something that I had to weave my whole, you know, career, um, you know, and, and it was something which I was mindful of New Horizons. Like, here's a technique which is very helpful <clears throat> if you're careful with it. If you're not careful with it, um, you'll make a mess. And there are a lot of people around who know this, and they may not understand the method, and they're appropriately conservative and say, well, you know, look, I just don't believe that stuff. I'm going to stay away from it. And the trick there was to, I think, bring along those uh, who could see that it was a useful tool, but not go nutty 
you know, and destroy the credibility, and that's tricky. Yeah. Um, to, to continue on the Hubble a little bit, you know, there were other images that came in, in 1990, and I was able to process them as well, and we had the first uh, release of papers, and uh, I was lead author for a couple papers, and, you know, second or third often or others that demonstrated this technique, and so I was able to show pretty quickly that, that this was going to work for Hubble Space Telescope besides that first star cluster that they worked on. You know, we studied a storm on Saturn and we made a great picture of Jupiter and, and so on and so forth. And so it became clear, you know, in the early 90s that, you know, we could do science with Hubble Space Telescope and deconvolution was going to be one of the tools. And, you know, so that that is my own history with that instrument. But it was a crutch and not a perfect solution. It was not a perfect solution because the aberration was hideous. Yeah, okay. uh, I mean, it was it was terrible. Um, what I would say, though, is that after it was fixed, uh, deconvolution is still valuable with the Hubble Space Telescope, and I've used it uh, ever since, uh, you know, the launch of the telescope, even on, quote, perfect images, to... Uh, sort of mine them from information and, and to improve their clarity for interpretation. So hmm. it remains a valuable technique, um, you know, still all these years later. All right. Well, from one magic wand to another. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm. this is a, a long setup to my next question. And because I'm not a good interviewer, I'm going to stick with what I originally written down <laughs> for it. <That's> <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I met you through our joint involvement on the New Horizons mission with the flyby of Pluto and Charon in July of 2015, and you were producing these images uh, not only with your deconvolution, but you were making these images that got us better than a single pixel resolution. Listeners of the podcast know that I've talked at length in different episodes about how you can't get any information out of an image more than what a single pixel will let you. So as an extreme example, you can't have uh, a long shot satellite image of Earth blow up a single pixel in the middle of Europe and see cars in a parking lot. You just can't do that because a single pixel is all of the information that you have. And yet a lot of pseudoscientists, of course, act as though you can, blowing up things uh, uh, literally a thousand percent and then claiming they've found life on Mars uh, in, in just this streamed out thrown out pixel uh but in fairness i did say that there were small exceptions to this sort of hard and fast but not really hard and fast rule so what i'd like you to talk about is what the idea of just a pixel is what that represents in an image versus the actual object that you're trying to image and how you can seemingly bend these rules to get more information out of an image than a single pixel would let you. Well, I, I yeah, I can answer all of that. The quickest way to say it is that um, you you aren't breaking that limit. the The trick is to use several pictures, each a little bit different than the others, and so you're combining lots of pixels and making new ones. Would be you know a, a, a quick way to describe it. So you don't have a magic wand that lets you take a single image and get sub-pixel data. 
No, with a, with a single, with a single image, you know, I can interpolate and make it look smoother rather than the blocky pixels, you know, and I can sharpen it a bit with deconvolution, but I cannot get below, you know, I can't make up information that's not there. And so. Well, you could, but. You well, don't. yes. But it would be wrong. You have integrity. <laughs> One hopes, at least in these matters, you know. Um, but. Uh, the, the trick is, you know, to say a little bit what a pixel is, and it, it's sort of funny. Uh, you, you can gnaw at me if I go a little too far with this. There's actually three kinds of pixels, and, and people don't discriminate between them. Uh, there is a pixel in your camera, and in the camera you average over an area. That is, everything that falls into this area of the camera will be a pixel, that's one kind. Uh, the second kind of pixel is what the electronics of the camera do. It measures up the light in that area, and it writes down a number. And that is the second kind of pixel, and that's what you store on disk. It's what you send across the Internet, you know, is a set of numbers. And that number is crucial. Even though you averaged over an area, it is a measurement at a precise point centered on that area. If I shifted it a little bit, I would make a different number, and that would be a different pixel. It's not a tile, okay? It's a little pinprick again. And then the third thing which causes some of the confusion is that I display the pixel, and I turn it into this little glowy square on the screen. And when I zoom up to it, everybody's Zoom software in the universe blows up the pinprick as a tile, and you see tiles and you got the classic blocky images. I didn't have to do that. I could have blown it up differently. There's nothing that makes a tile. In fact, it's not really an accurate description of what's really going on. A pixel is a measurement at a point, even though it may, you know, group around an area. So the, the trick is as follows. Say you, you, you get a camera. And the pixels are too big. You know, you can't afford. Well, you're you're a photographer, Stu. I what's a good what's a high end camera? Eight megapixels, or is that even? Or should I be more ambitious? You're, you're dated. Uh, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> uh, so twenty is uh, reasonable in high end cameras these days. I think my two main cameras are twenty two and twenty five or so megapixels. Uh, but but before we go on, actually, I was trying to think of an analogy. So. What you're saying is that instead of pixels being thought of like tiles on a floor where they're squares that abut each other, you should be thinking of pixels, maybe the original pixels, instead as maybe like a light board where you have a glowing light in one location and it's almost like a point of light, a teeny tiny light that sort of glows over an area and then a certain distance away there's another light that glows maybe brighter or darker over a similar size area and then another so this grid of little lights is that sort of what you were getting at well i i would push it a little bit harder i i would say forget the glowing over an area i would say take fiber optics and put you know the fibers in the regular grid and just have their ends light up and put it on black velvet, you know, so that you can't see what's between the fibers. Okay, but to to be even maybe push us a little bit more, 
if you were to take that black velvet, the amount of, I don't want to say information, but I'm going to, maybe the amount of light that is going to be spit out of that fiber optic cable at that location is going to be the sum of all of the light that fell within that black velvet area. Yeah, that, that, that is correct. I, I'm looking at what happens after I write down the numbers. So okay. basically, you scoop up all the light in an area, and that's represented by you know a number at the center of that area. Okay, okay. So here's where it gets tricky, okay? Yes, so, with our 25-megapixel high-end camera. Right. So now, now I, you know, I don't have the money to afford your fancy 25 megapixel camera. I might say, uh, you know, I, since I said it, I'm going to say, well, you know, I only got the bucks for an eight megapixel camera. Okay. And those have big pixels. And, you know, we're going to go out and you're going to take pictures and I'm going to say, whoa, that's really good. And you say, well, look, you know, if you had just gotten a better camera with finer pixels, you could have gotten all these sharp details. And, I always said, yeah, well, so is your mom or something like that, you know, and, and, uh. That's not nice. Yeah, I know, I know. And, and, but I'm going to say, well, okay, but, you know, I see that my pixels are averaging over a bigger area than yours are. Is there something I can do? And I'm not going to get your resolution. Okay. I can't, you know, you, you got really finely sampled stuff and I'm not going to beat that, but I can do better than what I think, you know, what the basic camera does. And so if I average over an area, I can start asking, well, what happens if I take another picture and I shift the camera just a fraction of a pixel, like half, okay? That makes a different picture because I'm averaging, you know, what went into this pixel one and the other pixel to that. Now there's a pixel between them that kind of averages the information. And so I say, okay, let's move the camera to the left. Now let's move it up. Now let's move it to the left and up. Okay, so I'm taking half pixel steps. So now I got four images and the centers are, you know, are much finer than the original grid. And so let's go back and think now of that little fiber optic thing I got set up. I've got, you know, this row like planting crops, you know, rows and nice columns of these little pin pricky fibers sticking up on black velvet. Well, now I've got three more images. And wait, you know, I'm going to put the first one, you know, in between in one direction. And now I'm going to put another one in between the other direction. And then, you know, there's a third image. And so now I've got four times the number of pixels that I started with. And the spacing is twice as small. So it's finer. And, you know, and it comes from four images and I put them together and that captures a little bit of what happens as I move the camera around. It has more information. Each of those four pictures have a separate piece, and now I can assemble them. Now, there's lots of tricks with this. Um, you know, first of all, maybe I didn't move the camera correctly. You know, maybe I didn't get exactly the half step. And so I have to do something about that. And that's where the mathematics come in is, is, you know, it's not optimal putting it together. But the heart of it is that, is that you have separate images, each with a little bit of information, and you can weave it together. And um, again, you know, each of the pixels are big. They average over a large area, but yet, you know, you can recover a little bit finer information the way, you know, you can weave it together. 
And is this uh, where a little bit of deconvolution would come in again, where at a fundamental level, even if you had perfect optics and a perfect detector, you would still, in your reconstructed image, have a blurring of the size of an original pixel? Yes, you, you would. You can't get rid of the size of the original pixel. But um, the way to describe this, and now this gets to be very technical, and uh, we, we can see how far we go down this rabbit hole. Okay. Um, so the camera optics blur, and you have to, and a, a well-sampled, as it's called, image has like at least a couple pixels across the size of the blur circle. And, you know, if you have more pixels, finer pixels than the blurring, then this fancy thing I'm describing doesn't buy you anything. The camera is already blurred out the detail. The fine pixels, there's nothing for them to grab a hold of. So you can make all the pixels you want you know, and interlace these images, you aren't doing anything. It's the camera has limited you, okay? So you're, you're done. Forget it. So let's say, for example, when I take an astrophoto with my camera and my you know, $2,000 camera lens or whatever, and no matter how well I focus, my stars are always about three or four pixels across. That's a limiting factor of maybe the atmosphere, but probably the optics of my lens. So can you do anything with something like that or? No, okay. no, your, your, your single picture there has all the information you're going to get. You're limited by the camera. Okay. But, but if I got a $20,000 lens and let's say then my stars were one and a half pixels across or something, or maybe one, maybe I got to that one pixel perfect point, then I would be able to do something. That's right, because now what's happened <clears throat> is that your your camera optics are not the limit, but the size of your pixels. You need finer pixels, and this is called undersample. And technically speaking, mathematically speaking, how to process undersampled images, you should never, well, interpolating them or doing anything like that are suspect if you do it directly. Um, but you can do this dithering. You can say, well, gosh, uh, you know, I've got one and a half pixels across. Let me just, you know, tip over, you know, just dither over a little bit. And so it lands on the pixels differently. And okay, that's where you're, you're shifting the camera itself a half a pixel or something because I, I don't think right. you used the term dither before. Okay, yeah. And, and you know, dither, it's a funny word, isn't it? It's like dithering. You picture somebody hopping on their feet kind of not making up their mind and jiggling around a little bit. But I, I you know, it's a, it's it's the word that we use technically. And so, yeah, you push the camera around a little bit, both in X and Y, and that makes the sampling change, and it's that information that you can recover. And that's an area of research that I've spent a good bit of time thinking of how to do. And as it happens, because cameras on spacecraft are very expensive, uh, and actually small pixels are not very sensitive either. You know, you have electronic noise in the camera that has to be beaten. And so often when you make a camera in space, you are actually forced to, you know, for technical reasons and budgetary reasons, to make the pixels a little bigger than the blurring. Which is one reason why New Horizons only has a one megapixel main camera. That that is that is correct. It's very hard to get that data back, and 
you know, and, and actually I, I have to joke because, you know, by training I'm not a planetary astronomer and I found out this incredible trick that the planetary astronomers do. You know, I look and say, gee, you know, those pixels are pretty big, you know, and, you know, what what's the deal here? I'm, I'm you know, <clears throat> we're, we're on the way into Pluto and, you know, look, the pixels are bigger than the planet. And the answer is like, just wait. <laughs> it's going to get sharper. The planet's going to get bigger when you fly by it. And you know, we don't we can't do that trick with galaxies. Um not yet anyway. Not not yet anyway. But yeah, New Horizons the camera in the Lori camera and in the MVIC camera are are pretty big. They they're bigger than the actual um blurring uh, produced by the cameras, and so that again is where if you move, you know, kick things around a little bit, you can recover some information, and in a series of images, you know, weave it together. Um, to go a step further, you know, I talked about four images separated by a step of uh, half pixels. The mathematics really allow you to take several images, each with their own pointings, you know, and weave them together, and that's where you can really pull out the best information. Uh, that the camera can produce. And if you don't know this trick, um, you know, and you say, well, I'll take a single picture and try to average it uh, together, you'll just make things worse. You'll actually smear things out. And in this way, I can add pictures and make the results sharper. Um, now, I should say this is not using deconvolution. This is just weaving the pictures uh, and the data set together to make a sharper image just like that. You can deconvolve that. In fact, deconvolution works better once you have corrected this. So it's a one-two punch. You build an image with everything woven together. And I think that's the real thing I focused on with New Horizons. And then after you do that, then you can sharpen it up further. Right. So I think that's enough detail for the level of this podcast, uh, especially because um, even I'm starting to get slightly lost, and, and I know, <laughs> Sorry, I know there. Well, no, I, I I understand it now. Actually, I think a lot better than I did before, which is good because I think it's important to note that even people in our field, and you're not okay, you're not in planetary astronomy. So my field and your field probably still are highly skeptical of some of these techniques. So, I mean, we wrote a paper where I was the lead author. It was about Pluto and Charon and Nixon Hydra craters. And we had a reviewer who will remain nameless, who I'm pretty sure does not listen to this podcast. But, <laughs> but this reviewer basically said, this is BS. Like, you're making... Stuff up. I don't think that the reviewer actually said you're making stuff up, but that was sort of the general impression that um, I think you wrote as a response to the reviewer. The reviewer appears to have a fundamental distrust of this method, despite its very rich history and its proven use, and in fact, the proven use in the paper. So what we did was we didn't do simulations uh, because I said I think that that's just diminishing returns for the purposes of craters. But what we did was we took your sort of resampled images um, where you had dithered them and created this single mosaic of Sharon, and then we compared the craters that I had identified in that image with craters in a actual higher resolution 
region that we got with the camera. So I think that your resampled mosaic was maybe 300 meters per pixel. We'll just make up numbers if it wasn't. So it was 300 meters per pixel instead of 600 meters per pixel, but there was a region of Sharon that we got at 160 meters per pixel, so even better than yours. Um, And so we were able to compare and contrast, and we found that, hey, they actually matched up. So the craters that we could not see in the original mosaic, but were able to see in your mosaic, were real, based on the higher resolution native mosaic from the camera. Yeah, and, and that's a perfectly good validation. If you if you can't, I mean, that's actually even better than simulations. You say, look, you know, we have higher resolution data. That's going to tell you the truth. And hey, look, it worked. And the reviewer is still... <laughs> still didn't like it. <laughs> still didn't like it. Yeah, know? we had so, to push it to an appendix and, and just say, look, you know, we'll... This is a valid technique, and and I think that that's actually important uh, for people to understand. You know, not only with this particular field of of science research, but the idea of skepticism in general. Like, it's important to be skeptical, but it's also important to realize when you're presented with information that proves something that you may not have believed to begin with but that really does prove that it works or that it's real, you really have to start to accept it. Otherwise, you just get into this state of denial. Yeah, and and it's often how it is. I mean, I I think people, um, you know, outside of science don't understand actually how skeptical scientists really are. Yeah, I mean, this was a real pain in the ass. (laughs) Yeah, it, 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 it was, and, you know, it, it was frustrating. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, what what was interesting with the New Horizons team is that, you know, I came on it, you know, from the outside, you know, through a, you know, contact with somebody I, I you know, barely knew. And this was a new world for me. And what I saw was that on the team, there was an immense amount of diverse skills. I mean, it's sort of like an orchestra. Look, somebody's playing bassoon over there. Gee, you know, I've never met a bassoon player. Wait, you know, there's, there's trumpets over there, you know, and, you know, I had my own instrument. And what was interesting about that was seeing how all of these skills, you know, were brought together you know, for the entire musical composition. And I think part of that is understanding, you know, what other people's skills were and how they they interrelated. And so, you know, my experience with the New Horizon team was very positive. Uh, Everybody was learning from everybody else. And, And I think that's how we were able to do some new things. And there were lots of people on the team who had new ideas and new approaches to things. And together... All of that summed up was vastly better, you know, than, than the sum of the parts. The yeah, well, whole... and for me, I mean, I think that it it was really important to be able to see some of these different kinds of techniques for image processing and other things that you were able to pull out because, I mean, I could see in a few years with some random project that it might actually be, I'm not going to say necessarily necessary, but it would greatly enhance the uh, the ability to do science. And I think that what this reviewer, who again shall remain nameless, uh, 
loses in that is that if they still have a fundamental mistrust of the technique, even though it's been proven time and again to work, that they'll lose that ability to use that technique to actually do something that they may not otherwise be able to do. I mean, barring sending another spacecraft there. Well, you, you know, and and the important thing to emphasize is that the reviewer, you know, was not on the team. And, you know, perhaps to be uh, fair to the reviewer, you know, he's confronted with something, you know, that he hadn't seen before that, you know, perhaps, you know, was outside the traditions of, of previous research. But it's exactly as you say. I mean, you remember at the start of this podcast, I talked about taking photographic plates. And, you know, darkroom work is kind of miserable. You know, these chemicals and the plates aren't that sensitive and you can't do much with them with the computer, you know. And I was there when CCDs were brand new. And a lot of astronomers like, oh, you know, what's this new stuff? Okay, but, you know, with the CCDs, we are going fainter and better. I mean, we are blowing you know, all the old methods out of the water. And anybody, you know, who wanted to do anything had to get with the program. You know, new stuff comes along and it's demonstrably better, you know, than people say, okay, forget these old, you know, techniques, old film and the things like we're going to use CCDs or electronics from now on. And so I think it, it is, you know, good algorithms, good analysis techniques, you know, should displace uh, the old ones. And, that goes back to something else that I said at the start is, you know, this is driven by research, um, questions to answer. In your case, you want to know about craters, you know, and, and at the end of the day, should you care about deconvolution or, you know, upsampling and dithering? No, o- only if it helps you understand something more about what you're looking at. And, you know, if it helped you with the cratering and you could say something you know, that nobody else could say about, you know, Pluto and Charon or the Kuiper Belt, you know, what the impactors were coming in as a result. And that's the real value. And he's like, oh, you know, this guy, Stuart, look what he did here. You know, he found that out before anybody else. You know, (laughs) we're we're, going to listen to him when he talks about craters from now on. That's the real proof. Yeah, well, And it's important because I'm also trying to do this in the field of craters is bring in a completely new statistical method for analyzing crater populations. And I suspect it's going to be – it's going to hit a tremendous amount of resistance just from entrenched people who are like, well, why should I have to do this and blah, blah, blah. And it's like – but it's it's such a a more elegant and statistically robust way of doing things. It removes all these assumptions that you've had since the 70s. But I digress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well – no, but 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 actually, that's the same thing. I mean, um, you know, well, well, see, I'm quoting myself over again. You know, we'll go back to the power tool thing. I mean, statistics uh, is a field only slightly less disreputable than deconvolution. <laughs> you can and prove anything with statistics. Thirty-eight percent of Americans know that. <laughs> right. And, you know, what I, I view, you know, statistics, because I'm interested in algorithms generally, you know, I've paid attention to, to statistics. And again, a carefully designed statistical method used in the right context and validated is very powerful. And so you're absolutely correct. You're going to run into resistance, but, 
you know, the whole exercise is communication, right? Right. You know, you, you lay it out the right way in the paper, you validate it, you demonstrate it, you convince that you've learned something uh, by using this that nobody else has. You know, the good people will pay attention. Oh, that's Stuart Robbins. Yeah, he used Fenucci's method. And look there, you know, you know, you know, now, now we better have to redesign our, you know, our missions because, you know, we hadn't thought about that, but now we can, you know, solve this problem that, you know, was impossible a while ago. So yeah, yep. I mean, sure, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. Well, and, and to be, to be a little bit morbid before I ask you the final question, um, at some point, there are people who will just refuse to accept new new methods and new ways of doing things. And that's where the morbid phrase, uh, science progresses one funeral at a time, comes in. I mean, because sometimes the old guard will just continue to do what they were doing. And the new people all realize that, well, we should be doing something this way. But Well, yeah, won't. and... And, and as somebody who is approaching the age of the old guard, you know, it, it, it's a question for any scientist if you fall into that. And um, I, I can say that my own case, you know, coming into the New Horizons mission, for me, uh, you know, the thing I got out of it most was just an exposure to completely new uh, research area, you know, new people, new ideas, new ways of doing things. And uh, I think any scientist has you know, to question, you know, uh, their own education and exposure. It's it's good to have cross-fertilization, to be exposed to new ideas. And uh, everybody's vulnerable to, you know, that stuff at some level. But uh, I, I, I've known people who are very young who get ossified, and I've known people very old who, you know, to the day they die are learning new things. So we've actually been recording for a little over an hour, but... I think that a good way to wrap up this conversation uh, and just sort of get past the idea of, you know, scientists really are skeptical. I th that's what I was going to say, is that scientists really are skeptics at heart, at least the good ones, and sometimes rightly so, and sometimes they let their skepticism get the better of them and they really need to accept new ways of doing things. But with all that out of the way... I think that a good wrap-up is actually a question uh, by Eric from the Facebook page for the podcast who wanted to know what was the most important image or images that you've worked on. And I'll actually expand that a little further to uh, what's your favorite? So it doesn't necessarily – your favorite doesn't have to be uh, the most important and vice versa. It can or it doesn't have to be. So sort of what's the most important and or what is your favorite? I, I have several favorites and, you know, it's hard to pick one. I can run through a few. I, I, I think, you know, the, the way I can describe this is, you know, I mentioned the orchestra. My own instrument is a piano. I love playing piano. And I'm not particularly good at it. But there are pieces which are very hard and tricky. And you hear somebody play, you know, a piece that requires all of their skill to bring out the music. And I, I love listening to stuff like that. And I think the, the images I've enjoyed most are where it's the image processing version of that. There's a, a, a problem to be solved, which requires an immense amount of thinking about, you know, how the image was made, how to treat it, how to deal with it. 
I, the image I referred to, you know, the first one we got with the Hubble Space Telescope where we demonstrated that deconvolution would work on real Hubble data. That was R136. That was important to me. Um, the image that came in a few months later after that, which was the center of a galaxy um, that we'd taken as a test image, was important to me um, and one of my favorites because I looked at that and I realized that we were going to learn something new. I mean, it was incredible for me that even with the aberrated optics, you know, I could see directly from the image that, you know, it smashed our old understanding of what the centers of galaxies look like. That was uh, a galaxy called NGC 747, 7457, and I wrote that up, and it was actually the first science paper from the Hubble Space Telescope. And it meant that, you know, we'd turned the corner, that we were going to be able to do science with this, with, you know, the tricks that we developed. Um, I think, you know, much, much later, uh, looking at the center of the Andromeda galaxy, I used the high-resolution camera of uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, and I made a picture, which is my icon on Twitter, of uh, the nucleus of that at incredible resolution, which required weaving together uh, several, uh, you know, a few dozen dithered images at with the best camera that the Hubble ever had, the high-resolution channel of uh, the ACS, and we could see a star cluster around the black hole. And, you know, in the original images, uh, taking the aberrated optics where we had one pixel, I was able to get, you know, like about four pixels across. And that was fun. Uh, the image on the way in with New Horizons, you know, the uh, final image uh, prior to the encounter when New Horizons went into radio silence, that was an adventure that I will never forget, uh, that just by, you know, being in the right place at the right time, I was able to help um, a group of people, you know, pull stuff out just to show that we had arrived at Pluto. So, you know, all of the, all of those were fun. And uh, I, I think that image, the, the New Horizons Pluto image, uh, was very special because, you know, I, I came to the mission late in the day. Yeah, and, me too. <laughs> Yeah, and, and there were, there were hundreds of people that worked on it, and each of those persons put in an immense amount of time. It was this incredible effort, and to be in that room when that picture came up, you know, and see everybody respond to it, that's something that happens, you know, once or twice in your career or something like that, and... I should say, you know, Alex Parker, who's on the team, who also helped process that picture, was was very honest. He said, you know, it was a great picture to begin with. You know, we just tied a ribbon around it, um, you know, to fancy it up a bit. And everybody was cheering, you know, not the work that we did, but just the existence of the picture itself. But, you know, still to say, you know, you were there playing with something that had never been seen before, and seeing a group of people all cheering at, at their hard work and arriving at this position. Um, and I know you were there, Stuart, and I, yeah, I think it's you, at 5 a.m. Yeah, five, yeah, but I, I bet you, I bet you were screaming your head off too. <laughs> uh, maybe it might not. have been for coffee, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah. I, I do remember that it was a very cool, uh, thing and it was, you know, we had all the cameras in the room. 
Um, and actually, there is a, a little bit of backstory to that, and this will unfortunately fuel conspiracies, but this was a case where the last image was going to come down at like, I think, 10 p.m. or something at night, the day before the encounter, and then the radio silence, as you said, and uh, it, it was sort of an executive decision by Alan Stern that he didn't want the science team up late, so he was going to get them up early. So what happened was the image came down and like it was literally just a few of you like and it was you Alex Simon Porter um and Carly at Howitt. Oh yeah. Um Carly is my John section Spencer manager. it was there. Spencer. So yeah, there's so five of, of you, six of who was the sixth? <laughs> the mystery NASA person telling you what to do. Uh, no, uh, so there was yeah, yeah, exactly. There were six people there basically overnight when that image came in, and you were doing everything you could. The rest of us got up, got to the big auditorium at five a.m. with the cameras rolling, and the image was unveiled. And I'll admit, I clapped. <laughs> I mean, it was. <laughs> you admit? <laughs> I, it, well, in general, I'm not that you know much of an emotional kind of person, but. It was definitely very impressive, and the amount of work that you folks put in staying up late to do that. I mean, I remember seeing you guys. You were just, like, dead at 5 a.m. <laughs> yeah, I, I had two hours of sleep at that point, you know, yeah. and then I had to get up at, you know, 5 to be there. But, um, but I, you know, you, you mentioned conspiracy theories, and, um, you know, I don't know how they work, but there's something that I could say which, you know, and this is self-centered, um, you know, working with the New Horizons image, images, um, uh, you know, I did some tricks to them and with them which were not in the lexicon of other people on the team. That is, I was able to weave and recover information present in a set of images. Um, the only person who could fake something like that would be myself. You know, <laughs> so if it's a conspiracy, it was you. It, it would have it would have had to have been me because uh, I, you know, I, I think about this: who has the information to actually make something like that work? And you know, I could look around the room and say, "There's nobody here who uses these trick tricks like this." So it'd have to be somebody who you know not only knows what Pluto looks like, but knows how the images are made in this detail, which nobody else on the team you know quite had. Well, and it, you get to the point where any conspiracy is going to collapse under its own weight. So, I mean, there's an, another good example of that is this whole uh, pyramid, this uh, stepped pyramid, a ziggurat on the other uh, far side of the moon that I debated at length with in, in a war of blogs against this guy um, about five years ago now. His name is Mike Barra. Listeners of the podcast probably recognize that name. And he claimed that there was this pyramid on the far side of the moon. But of course, it only showed up in this one version of this one Apollo metric camera image that the guy found on the Call of Duty Zombies online forum. Oh, boy. Yeah, and um, it, like, it doesn't show up in any other image of the moon of that area taken by any other spacecraft. So what would have to have happened in order to fake that image, um, the, the official versions of that image would be basically at the, in the 1960s, around the time the Soviets first flew by, you would have had to have a computer model or a model of that surface 
at literally centimeter detail, complete with the correct lighting response and everything else, colors, everything, because that image or that region of the moon has been imaged by probably a dozen different cameras yep. at multiple yep. wavelengths at yep. scales up to centimeters with yep. by completely different countries. And yep. so in order to be consistent throughout the decades of imaging that area, you would have had to design that hoax, that conspiracy back in the early 60s. So it's just one of those things that collapses under its own weight just like this where, well, I guess unless you're the one who did it, <laughs> basically – these images from New Horizons are real. And yet there are people who say that they're all fake and this is why. And I've covered that in a previous episode and I may cover another version of that in a future episode. And, so. and it's rather sad because, um, you know, when you're there in that room with all these people and all that raw intellect, you really see how the ideas make this stuff work and go. And it is a tremendous achievement. And, you know, there, with everything that goes on, you know, you have to look back and say, there are some things we do that are fantastic, and it is sad to diminish them. Yeah. I think that um, I used – I gave a quote to a newspaper on one of the Apollo anniversaries, and I said that by assuming that we didn't go to the moon or by claiming that we didn't go to the moon, not only – are you a, a denier or a hoax believer, but you sort of lose out on that shared human experience of that huge, momentous achievement. And it's New Horizons going to Pluto, I'm not going to say is at the same level of the moon, uh, of, of sending a person to the moon and getting them back successfully six times, uh, 11, 12, 14, 15, and 16, 17. But... It's, it's still one of those huge things. I mean, it's the last of the classical planets, the first of these Kuiper Belt objects, and it was a, an effort by hundreds of people. And it was very cool to be involved with that. And by saying that it's a hoax, you lose out on that shared human experience. Absolutely. And with that said, uh, I think it's a nice sentimental way to wrap up the episode. <laughs> so, I mean, we have been going for nearly an hour, 20 minutes at this point. Uh, so uh, unless there's anything else that uh, you want to get out. Um, I, I think I'm completely tapped out, Stuart. All right. Well, thank you for uh, giving me your time. And uh, thanks for sharing your knowledge with uh, the podcast audience. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Catch you later. Bye-bye. That wraps up this topic for the 158th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or you can leave a comment on the page for the episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. 
Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and random people that you'll never meet in real life.